Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I'm going to read an article that was published yesterday, April 4th, 2022, 54 years from the assassination of Martin Luther King. The title of the article is, Did J. Edgar Hoover Order the Assassination of Martin Luther King? The author is Jeremy Kuzmarov. Last name is spelled K-U-Z-M-A-R-O-V. And I reached out to him and he gave me permission to read this into the record and publish it. So um, doing so with full attribution, it was published in Covert Action Magazine. And you can see it if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see the cover of this excellent article that goes in detail into the death, uh, mysterious death, the suspicious death of Martin Luther King Jr. at a young age of 39. And I've also done another show, which I bumped back to the top of the podcast with author Philip F. Nelson and the title of the book and the discussion that we had that he wrote, the book he wrote was titled, Who Really Killed Martin Luther King Jr.? The Case Against Lyndon Baines Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover. And he's actually mentioned in this article, referenced uh, in the footnotes of this article that I'm going to read. Again, the title of the article is, Did J. Edgar Hoover Order the Assassination of Martin Luther King Jr.? And I highly recommend people Go look at the article. There's a lot of uh, photographs from that time, and uh, it's very well written. So I'm just going to get started. Did J. Edgar Hoover order the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. by Jeremy Kuzmarov? Powerful new evidence of a government-abetted conspiracy has prompted King family members to demand a reopening of the investigation into his murder. This is an updated article that was originally published on Martin Luther King Day Martin Luther King Jr. Day. The intro is, everyone knows that James Earl Ray shot Martin Luther King Jr., right? The U.S. government says so. All the school textbooks say so. And it is enshrined as unquestioned gospel in the pages of Wikipedia. But the official story is full of holes. Instead, mounting evidence suggests that King may have been murdered as part of a conspiracy planned and or abetted by the FBI in coordination with local Memphis police personnel. In this scenario... Ray served as a patsy, like critics allege Lee R.B. Oswald was in the JFK assassination. The real shooter, according to these accounts, struck King not from the boarding house bathroom, allegedly from where Ray shot him, but from bushes behind the Lorraine Motel, the King assassination's version of the grassy knoll. This article lays out that evidence, as as it may soon be laid out in court in a congressional committee. If the King's family's demands to reopen the murder investigation continue to gain traction, what follows is a reconstruction of the events leading up to King's murder and the subsequent purported attempts by local and national government officials to cover up their involvement and pin it on a patsy named James Earl Ray. At 6.01 p.m. on April 4, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was struck in the face by a bullet as he was leaning over the balcony of his room at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. An hour later, he was declared dead by at nearby St. Joseph's Hospital. King had come to Memphis as part of his Poor People's Campaign to support a sanitation worker strike. The civil rights leader was increasingly promoting socialist views, had become more outspoken in criticizing the war in Vietnam, and had been running for president on an anti-war ticket with Benjamin Spock. After King had given a speech denouncing the Vietnam War at the New York's Riverside Church one year before his assassination, U.S. Army spies recorded black radical Stokely Carmichael warning him, quote, 
The man don't care you call ghettos concentration camps, but when you tell him his war machine is nothing but hired killers, you got trouble, unquote. Carmichael, unfortunately, was right. Lone assassin, assassin, question mark. Police authorities fingered James Earl Ray, a career criminal from Alton, Illinois, who had escaped from Jeff the Jefferson City, Missouri Penitentiary in April 1967 as the lone assassin. On May 6, 1968, syndicated columnist Drew Pearson wrote that the FBI was conducting, quote, perhaps the most painstaking, exhaustive manhunt ever before undertaken in the United States. Its G-men have checked every bar ever patronized by James Earl Ray, every flop house he ever stopped at, every cantina in Mexico he ever visited. It has collected an amazing array of evidence, all linking Ray with the murder, unquote. Ray was supposedly motivated by race hate. He allegedly began stalking Dr. King on the weekend of March 17th in Los Angeles, arriving in Memphis on April 3rd with the murder weapon and booking into a seedy rooming house owned by Bessie Brewer above Jim's Grill right across from the Lorraine Motel. Just before 6 p.m., Ray barricaded himself in a communal bathroom from where he pointed his rifle outside the window and shot King. Afterwards, in haste, Ray neglected to eject the spent cartridge. Back in his room, he wrapped his rifle along with an overnight bag in a bedspread and ran outside. Ray was then spotted by another tenant in the rooming house, Charles Quitman Stevens, the state's chief prosecution witness, who said that he saw Ray running out. When Ray saw a stream of police cars rushing to the scene, he panicked and dropped the bedspread with the rifle in the doorway of the Caneep Amusement Company on South Main Street. He then fled in a white Mustang, making his way first to Atlanta, where he ditched the car, then to Toronto, where he hid for a month, and then to Portugal and England, where he was apprehended two months later by authorities trying to board a flight to Brussels. Ray's fingerprints had been found on the gun that allegedly killed King, scope, binoculars, beer can, and a copy of the Memphis Commercial Appeal dropped in the bundle. At his trial, Ray pled guilty and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. House Select Committee on Assassinations and 1999 Civil Trial. The 1979 House Select Committee on Assassinations, or the HSCA, which was convened to investigate the King and Kennedy assassinations, alleged that Ray carried out the killing to collect a bounty from two St. Louis racists, both dead at the time. In 2012, G. Robert Blakey, staff director to the HSCA, said, however, that he had been deceived by the CIA, which had failed to inform him that a government liaison to the HSCA, George Joannides, had a CIA background. Blakey told the Jackson, Mississippi Clarion Ledger that thoughtful people today, not just nuts, think that more people than James Earl Ray were involved in King's killing. In 1999, a mixed-race jury presiding over a wrongful death civil suit by the King family in Memphis reached a unanimous verdict that King was assassinated as a result of a conspiracy involving the U.S. government. King's widow, Coretta Scott King, said afterwards that, quote, there is abundant evidence of a major high-level conspiracy in the assassination of my husband, unquote. The jury found that the mafia and various local, state, and federal government agencies were deeply involved in the assassination. Mr. Ray was set up to take the blame. Case not closed. Three days after his sentencing, Ray fired his mob-connected attorney, Percy Foreman, and said that he was pressured into pleading guilty and had been set up as a patsy. Foreman was given 60% royalty rights on a book about Ray by William Bradford Huey, H-U-I-E, 
which would not have sold if it were about a non-assassin. The FBI was never able to match the bullet that killed King with the rifle allegedly left by Ray on the steps of the Kenip Amusement Company. Ray's fingerprints were also never identified in the room he had rented at the rooming house. A well-known crime scene investigator determined that the shot from the rooming house bathroom could not have struck King unless Ray had hung out the window or smashed a 10-inch deep hole in the wall for his rifle to fit into. The angles were all wrong. Memphis police officer Vernon Dollahide said that he arrived on Main Street with one within one minute and 50 seconds of King's shooting and did not see a fleeing Mustang or hear screeching tires, raising doubt that Ray could have gathered his stuff, dropped it in front of the Kenip Amusement Company, a detour from his car, and gotten away to escape notice by Dollahide. Ray's decision to drop the bedsheet supposedly resulted from his panic at seeing a parked police car after exiting the boarding house. However, the car would have been blocked by a hedge, which was cut down the day after King's death. According to Guy Kniep, the bedsheet was dropped on the steps of the Kniep Amusement Company approximately two to five minutes before King was shot. Kniep described the person dropping the bundle as having a chunky build, which did not match Ray. Ray's old prison radio, which could be seen outside the bundle, supposedly fell out when the bundle was tossed in the doorway. However, it was not on its side, visibly cracked or broken. The rifle was also packed tightly, which a panicked killer in a hurry to get away could not have done. The prosecution's main witness, Charles Quitman Stevens, had been arrested 155 times, mostly for alcoholism, and was dead drunk at the time of the shooting, according to his wife, landlady, a homicide detective who interviewed him, Tommy Smith, and a cab driver who picked him up. He was looking to obtain a $100,000 reward for identifying the Slayer of King. Later, when it shown a photo of Ray by a CBS journalist, Stevens said that he was not the man he had observed running out of the boarding house. Stevens' cab driver, James McCraw, said the hall bathroom was open and the bathroom empty as he approached and left Stevens' room, indicating that the shots did not come from there. Stevens' common-law wife, Grace Walden, also said that she heard the shot come from outside her window in the rooming house, which opened onto the bushy area between the rooming house and the motel. The only man she saw coming out of the rooming house was short with salt and pepper hair, wearing an open army jacket and plaid sports shirt, which did not fit Ray. Two Mustangs and Ray's alibi. When he was picking up Stevens, James McCraw saw, said he noticed a delivery van and two white Mustangs parked within 50 yards of each other one in front of Jim's Grill, the other just south of the Kniep Amusement Company. Another witness, Charles Hurley, told Ray attorney William Pepper that after arriving to pick up his wife at the rooming house at 4.45 p.m., he pulled up behind a Mustang with Arkansas plates parked in front of the rooming house and south of the Kniep Amusement Store. Ray's Mustang had Alabama plates and was parked north of the Kniep Store. Ray said that he got into the car between 5.45 and 5.50 p.m. and went to a local service station to have a spare tire repaired, meaning that he was not at the rooming house when King was killed. However, his brother, John Larry Ray, said that the James said that James lied and was waiting in his Mustang for his handler, Raul, at the time King was shot, believing he was to be the getaway driver for some job. Shortly after he heard the shot that killed King, Raul jumped into the backseat of his vehicle and put his sheet over his head and Ray drove off. After a few blocks, Raul jumped out of the car and fled, and Ray drove all night to Atlanta. Making, after making his way to Canada, Ray was assisted financially by a mysterious fat man 
who provided him with money in Toronto. Researcher Peter Dale Scott suggests that it was planned for Ray to be apprehended after Robert Kennedy's assassination to enable a restoration of confidence in the government in the wake of such a tragic event and the writing that had followed King's killing. An unlikely assassin. Ray did not have a clear motive for killing King apart from a possible financial one. He could never have survived on the lam after his prison escape and in the two months after the King assassination without outside support. Ray had received money not only for travel and lodging, but also for fake identities, plastic surgery, even dance and bartending classes and hypnosis. Hypnosis. A strong anti-communist who was otherwise apolitical, Ray was painted in the media as a racist. However, people close to him said that he had, a black, had had a black girlfriend and that evidence was planted by police to make him appear to be a racist when he was not. Most significantly, Ray had no expertise in firearms. During a stint in the, in the army, he was trained with an M1 and obtained only the lowest level of ability. The salesman who sold him the alleged murder weapon in Birmingham, which he had been told to buy by the mysterious Raoul, discussed below, said that Ray did not seem to know anything at all about firearms. I mean, nothing. Shot from the bushes. King Chauffeur, Solomon Jones, and Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC attorney, Chauncey Eskridge, who were both looking at King when he died, said that they saw King's body lurch upwards when he was shot, not downward, indicating that the shot could not have come from the rooming house bathroom. Instead, it, it must have come from the bushes behind Jim's grill and between the rooming house and the motel. Ray's first lawyer, Arthur Haynes Sr., noticed tree branches that would not have been that would have been a formidable obstacle to shooting King from the rooming house bathroom, though these branches were cut down the next day by police trying to cover this up. Several eyewitnesses reported seeing a man crouching in the bushes and running away afterward, and it sounded like a firecracker coming from the bushes. Harold Cornbread Carter, who was drinking wine in the bushes, told investigators that he saw a man wearing a high-necked white sweater run away after a after, with a long gun in his hand, after he had heard a loud bang from the bushes. Olivia Catling said that she saw a fireman standing near the wall below the bushes, yelling at the police that the shot came from the clump of bushes above the area where he was standing, but the police ignored him. Reverend James Orange said that he saw smoke rise from the bushes right by the fire station seconds after the shot. The smoke was most likely sonic dust rising from the bushes caused by the firing, of a high-powered rifle in the heavily vegetated area. Orange and a reporter, Kay Black, also alleged that the brush area was cut and cleared back the morning after the shooting, along with the inconveniently placed tree branch that blocked a clear shot from the rooming house. The pre-dawn cleanup request, according to Maynard Stiles, deputy director of the Memphis City Public Works Department in 1968, came from the Memphis Police Department early on the morning of April 5th. The night before King's killings, Killing. The only two black firemen in the Memphis Fire Department, Norvell Wallace and Floyd Newsom, were ordered not to report the next day to their post at Fire Station Number 2 overlooking the Lorraine Motel. The Memphis Police Department failed to form the usual security squad of black detectives for Dr. King and withdrew other key police security units to a position five blocks away from the Lorraine Motel on April 4th, a key factor that enabled the assassins to get away. Black detective Ed Reddit was removed from his surveillance post about an hour before King's shooting 
and placed in home confinement after the FBI had warned MPD of an assassination attempt directed against him by the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which proved to be phony and served as a diversion. Just before King was shot, someone else called in a hoax from downtown that drew police attention to the northeastern side of the city. The host, hoax indicated an organized plot and that Ray could not have been the lone assassin. Lloyd Jowers and Jim's Grill. Taxi driver James McCraw told William Pepper that on the morning after the shooting, Lloyd Jowers, the owner of Jim's Grill, showed him a rifle in a box on a shelf under the counter, which he said he had found out back after the killing. The account was corroborated by Betty Spates, a young black waitress at Jim's Grill, who implicated Jowers, her former lover, in the murder. Spates said that after hearing what sounded like a shot, she saw him run into the kitchen from the bush carrying a rifle. His hair was in disarray, and the knees of his trousers were wet and muddy as though he had been kneeling in the soggy grass or brush areas. Jowers then wrapped his rifle in the tablecloth, put it under his apron, and slipped into the cafe behind the counter where he discreetly placed the rifle under a shelf and then asked customer Harold Parker, a taxi driver, if he heard anything. The shooting had only happened one minute earlier. Subsequently, a sheriff's deputy came in and ordered Jowers to lock Jim's grill and keep everyone inside. Jowers later admitted to Willie Akins, his right-hand man, that he was the figure in the bushes, although he said someone else was the shooter. Akins said that his job was to kill this shooter who ran off to Florida before he could pop him. Jowers had been a Memphis police officer from 1946 to 1948 who went into business running clubs, then bars and restaurants. Bill Hamblin, James McCraw's roommate, testified at the 1999 civil trial that McCraw had told him that Jowers had not only showed him the rifle that killed King, but told him to get rid of it. McCraw, in turn, said that he drove on to the Memphis-Arkansas Bridge and threw it off. Frank Liberto and Carlos Marcello, or Marcello. In an ABC television interview in 1993, Jowers said that he had received $100,000 from Frank Liberto, president of the Liberto, Liberto, and Latch Produce Company in Memphis, to arrange Dr. King's murder. John McFerrin, a civil rights leader in 1968, told William Pepper how he heard Frank Liberto from the back of his store before King's death say, quote, I told you not to call me here. Shoot the son of a bee when he comes on the balcony, unquote. Liberto, a member of the Carlos Marcello crime family, told the caller he should collect his money. 5000 was mentioned from Liberto's brother in New Orleans. Frank Holt, a black produce truck unloader whom Jowers had falsely tried to blame at one point for the murder, heard Liberto say to one of the big wheels at the M.E. Carter Produce Company during the sanitation strike that, quote, King is a troublemaker and he should be killed. If he is killed, then he will cause no more trouble, unquote. Levada Whitlock Addison, the, matter, the manager of a pizza parlor near Liberto's home, said that one day between 1976 and 1982, Liberto leaned forward and told her, quote, I have Dr. Martin Luther King killed, unquote. Earl Clark and Morell McCullough. Jowers identified the assassin, and assassin as Memphis Police Lieutenant Earl Clark, who was regarded as the best shot on the MPD and was close to Liberto. Afterwards, Clark allegedly scaled down a wall adjacent to the Lorraine Motel before jumping into an escape vehicle. Clark was involved in planning sessions at Jim's Grill to prepare for the assassination with five other men, only two of whom Jowers could identify. 
One of the men, unbeknownst to Jowers, was an undercover police officer and agent provocateur, Morel McCullough, who was assigned to the MPD from the 11th Military Intelligence Group. Born in Mississippi, McCullough had served in the military police in Vietnam and went on to work for the CIA in Central or South America. At the time of King Slaying, McCullough was posing as a member of the Invaders, a militant black political group, which gave him access to King and his circle. He was identified as the mysterious figure kneeling over Dr. King after he was shot. Frank Strausser and Moses Mashkivitsan. In April 2003, Lenny Curtis, a custodian at the MPD shooting range, identified King's killer at, to William Pepper as MPD patrolman Frank Strausser. Curtis said that about four or five months before King's death, he heard Strausser, a Vietnam veteran with a reputation for beating up black people, say in the lounge of the rifle range that, quote, somebody was going to blow King's MFing brains out, unquote. Curtis identified Strausser as being in the gun range firing rif a rifle all day before the day of King's assassination. Around 2.30 p.m., Memphis Mayor Henry Loeb, MPD Chief Frank Holloman, and a number of MPD officers, including Earl Clark, whom Curtis identifies as the spotter in King's shooting, went into a meeting in a room in the rifle range. Strausser then left around 3.30 p.m. wearing a white shirt and a pair of sunglasses, carrying the assassination rifle in a red Chevrolet convertible. After the killing, investigators identified a size 13 shoe print in the bush behind the Lorraine Motel. In October 2013, Pepper interviewed Strausser and got him to admit that he wore a size 13 shoe. Moses Mashkivitsan, whose likeness had been rendered in a police artist's drawing, could have alternately, alternatively been the shooter in the bushes. Mashkivitsan was a Russian emigre who'd been a double agent in World War II, who testified at the trial of Nazi Quisling, Marshal Philippe Petain. After the war, he got into drug smuggling in Belgium, was recruited as a Federal Bureau of Narcotics informant, and became a CIA contract killer identified by author Richard Mahoney, the son of a CIA agent, as being part of the 1961 assassination plot against Congo's nationalist leader, Patrice Lumumba. Ray's intelligence background. Ray's brother, John Larry, believes that his brother's role as a patsy in the king killing had been planned for many years and originated with his army service at the end of World War II. After enlisting in 1946 at the age of 17, Ray served in the 78992nd Infantry Regiment and as a military policeman with the 382nd Military Police Battalion in Nuremberg, Germany. Subsequently, Ray was recruited into the OSS, or the Office of Strategic Services, the predecessor of the Central Intelligence Agency. He told Larry, John Larry, that when you join the OSS, it's like joining the mafia. You never leave. Researcher Lyndon Barston was told by an intelligence officer that the four-digit army units, like the 7892nd Infantry Regiment, were often used for cover. The unit was based in Frankfurt, Germany, the European headquarters of the CIA, housed in the old IG Farben building, which had been spared during the Allied bombing. Ray was given two serial numbers, which further indicated he was involved in something secret. According to John Larry, James was haunted by an incident when he was in the military police when he shot a black soldier named Washington who was accused of beating up Jews and raping an officer's family member, which was not true. James had been given lumbar punctures or spinal taps by army doctors, which can be used to administer drugs. Gaps in Ray's military record further lead to suspicion that he was an unwitting victim 
of mind control experiments carried out under the CIA's MK Ultra, which may have caused him to shoot the black soldier. FBI documents show that Ray saw two hypnotists in Los Angeles after his army service was completed, one of whom, Xavier Von Koss, had been an army intelligence officer and was likely brought over under Operation Paperclip, which brought Nazi scientists to the U.S. James had told his family that the feds were messing with his mind and his father felt that he had been drugged. Between 1949 and 1952, James served as an undercover operator for FBI investigations into communists in Chicago, earning him the nickname The Mole. When Ray was arrested after committing a robbery, an intelligence operative was spotted in the rooming house where he was staying. There is a possibility that he was there because the government wanted Ray locked up so they could use him for in a later operation, knowing he was a controllable, controllable personality. Jeff City Escape or Jefferson City escape. There is no better patsy than an escaped prisoner because he cannot go to the police for assistance and is dependent upon his contacts for survival. On April 23, 1967, Ray escaped from the Missouri State Penitentiary at Jefferson City, where he was serving a 20-year sentence by hiding in a bread box in the back of a bakery truck. The director of the Missouri State Prison System at the time, Fred T. Wilkinson, was a U.S. intelligence operative who handled the famous 1960 spy exchange between U-2 pilot Francis Gary Powers, whose plane had been shot down over the Soviet Union, and a Soviet colonel, Rudolf Abel, who had been in prison for setting up a spy network in the U.S. The warden at Jeff City, Harold Swenson, also had an intelligence background. His predecessor, E.V. Nash, was said to have committed suicide, though the gun that killed him was found in a separate room in his house than his body. After a failed escape attempt, Ray was seen by Dr. Donald B. Peterson, head of psychiatry for the Army's Far East Command during the Korean War, the height of the brainwashing era. Peterson described Ray, prescribed Ray with Librium, a drug listed in government documents as one used to strengthen narco hypnosis. Gene Barnes, a former inmate at Jeff City, signed an affidavit in the late 1970s, which said that he had been told by Warden Donald Wyrick, that Wyrick, Wilkinson, and Swenson had allowed James to escape Jeff City so that the feds could later use him as the fall guy in King's assassination. The fingerprints the prison sent out after James's escape were not his. They had been switched by Wilkinson and Swenson with another man's, meaning that if Ray had been captured, the police would have had to set him free. When Wilkinson retired, the inmate who talked Ray into escaping, Ronnie Westbrook, committed, quote, suicide, unquote, by hanging himself, though he was discovered with broken arms and legs, pointing to foul play. The mystery of Raoul. After James's escape, he came in contact with a mysterious figure named Raoul, who provided Ray with phony documents in Montreal, Canada, after the two met at the Neptune bar. In exchange for the documents, Raoul had Ray assist him in smuggling contraband across the border, and then sent Ray to Birmingham, Alabama, where he purchased a 1966 white Mustang and a telescopic rifle that appears to have served as the fake murder weapon. In Montreal, Ray was given the identity of Eric St. Vincent Galt, who happened to be a highly placed Canadian operative of the U.S. Army intelligence. Galt ran a warehouse for Union Carbide, which housed a top-secret munitions project funded by the CIA, the U.S. Naval Surface Weapons Center, and the Army Electronics Research and Development Command. 
At 3 p.m. on April 4th, Ray met Raul at Jim's Grill, where he was told to go to the rooming house next to the Lorraine Motel. He then waited for him after the shooting and helped him flee from the scene before Raul jumped out of the car and abandoned him to his fate. Raul's real name may have been J.C. Hardin, a man Ray had been in contact with and was believed to be an FBI snitch, or Raul Coelho, a Portuguese immigrant identified by Glenda Graveau, or Raul Esquivel, whose, whose number Ray called. Esquivel was tracked by a Los Angeles Times reporter to Louisiana State Police Barracks in the New Orleans Baton Rouge area, well known, a well-known staging ground for CIA-sponsored guerrilla operations against Fidel Castro. Jules Rico Kimball, a convicted killer who worked for organized crime, the Ku Klux Klan and CIA in French separatist struggle in Quebec, told investigators that he flew Ray to Montreal and brought him to a CIA identity specialist who provided Ray with his aliases. A retired CIA agent later said that the CIA identity specialist in Montreal was named Raoul Moira. Ewan Cameron and MK Ultra. While serving as race handler in Montreal, Kimball said that the two were ordered to go to McGill University's Memorial Institute to undergo hypnosis. The Memorial Institute was the home of Subproject 68 of CIA's MK Ultra brainwashing program run by Dr. Ewan Cameron, the lead CA mind control expert in Canada. Inside job. Kimball said that the assassination was carried out by a team of covert intelligence operatives who had an unmarked van with sophisticated electronic radio equipment that could oversee the crime scene and monitor and broadcast on police radio channels. Two snipers with the team used rifles identical to Ray's, while other members obtained Memphis Police Department uniforms. The two snipers concealed themselves in the bushes behind the boarding house. One was a backup, the other shot King. The rifles were then concealed in a prearranged hiding place behind the boarding house where they were retrieved by other operatives. The two snipers afterwards jumped down onto the sidewalk from the bushes and mingled with the other uniformed officers who were rushing about. A voucher had been established for the police imposters. If anyone asked who they were, they were told to call a certain police captain who would vouch for the new men on the force. Secret Army Intelligence Team The 902nd Military Intelligence Group under the command of Colonel John W. Downey, LBJ's CIA Vietnam briefer, had been deployed to Memphis at the time of King's visit with orders to shoot to kill him and aid Andrew Young, who later became mayor of Atlanta, on command. King was considered, quote, a Negro who repeatedly preached the message of Hanoi and Peking, unquote. The 902nd Military Intelligence Group had been involved in gun running with mobster Carlos Marcello. Weapons stolen from Army bases were delivered to Marcello, and the proceeds were used to help fund black operations. According to two sources, the 902nd included Klan guys who hated N-word. The Green Beret said that nobody in it had any any hesitancy about killing the two sacks of SHIT, King and Young. Another Green Beret who participated in clandestine training course in riot control and surveillance identified a CIA NSA agent whom he had recognized from his time in Vietnam climbing down a wall behind the Lorraine Motel just after King was shot. A contact in the CIA had given Downey's team a detailed area of operations map, pictures of cars used by the King Group and Memphis Police radio frequencies. It carried camera equipment and took up positions overlooking the Lorraine Motel and monitored King's phone teleconversations from room 306 and other communications. 
He obtained pictures that caught the shooter as he was lowering his rifle and Jowers running back toward the rooming house. These were given to Colonel Downey and never revealed publicly. The secret agent who snapped the photos said that the shooter was not Ray. Ties to Dallas, 63. In the days after King's killing, FBI agent Don Wilson came across a 1966 Mustang with Alabama plates in Atlanta and opened the car door. An envelope and some papers fell out, which he, had, he kept hidden for the next 29 years. One piece came from a 1963 Dallas telephone directory. The telephone numbers on the page included those of the family of H.L. Hunt and had the name Ra Raul, the letter J, and a Dallas telephone number, which turned out to be the number of the Vegas club, which, at the time, was run by Jack Ruby, the killer of Lee Harvey Oswald. The second paper was a payoff list and include, included Raul's name and a date for payment. A third piece of paper had a telephone number and extension of the Atlanta FBI field office. The FBI's war against King. Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg swore in an affidavit that during a 1978 conversation with Brady Tyson, then an aide to UN Ambassador Andrew Young, Tyson said that a group of off-duty and retired FBI officers, including a sharpshooter, working under the personal direction of J. Edgar Hoover, killed King and then covered it up. According to Ron Adkins, Hoover's right-hand man, Clyde Tolson, who allegedly was routinely given money by Hoover to perform criminal deeds, including local contract killings, planned King's assassination beginning in May 1964 on a cruise to Southampton, England, with Russell Adkins Sr., Ron's father, and a Memphis City engineer, Klansman, and fixer for the Dixie Mafia. Part of the plot involved Tolson's providing envelopes of money to be paid to informants and the $25,000 to the warden of the Missouri State Prison, Harold Swenson, to arrange for Ray's escape. Hoover had considered King an enemy of the state. In, 19, in December 1963, less than a month after the assassination of President Kennedy, FBI officials had met in Washington to explore ways of neutralizing King as an effective Negro leader. Hidden microphones were placed in King's hotel rooms in an attempt to pick up evidence of extramarital sexual activity, break up his marriage, or blackmail him. The Bureau also engaged in surreptitious activities and burglaries against Dr. King and the SCLC. In a letter sent to King in 1964 calling King a colossal fraud, the FBI even encouraged him to commit suicide. FBI MPD links. The FBI enjoyed very close connections with the Memphis PD. E.H. Arkin founded MPD's intelligence unit in 1967 under the tutelage of FBI agent William Lawrence, who headed the FBI Memphis field office's domestic intelligence operations, which surveilled King. The head of the MPT, MPD at the time of King's assassination, Frank Holloman, was a 25-year FBI veteran from Mississippi who was in charge of Director J. Edgar Hoover's Washington office from 1952 to 1959. In the mid-1960s, Holloman headed the FBI's Atlanta office when it was the nerve center of surveillance and skullduggery directed against King. A law and order conservative who railed against the long-haired, foul-smelling hippies and hostile forces in Black Memphis, Holloman had served in a special intelligence unit in World War II that reported to Nelson Rockefeller. He promoted aggressive police tactics against Blacks during the sanitation worker strike, whom he accused of adopting guerrilla warfare and oversaw an expansion of MPD's internal security division. The tri-state defender called Holloman an advocator for genocide of black people that included a cartoon depicting him firing his pistol under the shelter of hooded Klansmen. 
Holman said that his first priority as police chief, police chief was to ensure that there was always a two-way street in terms of the flow of information between the MPD and FBI. He was the one to move the black fireman and pull black detective Ed Reddit away from protecting King, and according to witnesses interviewed by William Pepper, was involved in numerous other aspects of the planning of King's death. FBI gets King to stay at the Lorraine Motel and switches room. On March 29, 1968, the FBI issued from headquarters a Pro or Counterintelligence Program Memorandum written by G.C. Moore, Chief of the Racial Intelligence Section, to William C. Sullivan, Assistant Director in charge of the Intelligence Division that was designed to influence King to stay at the Lorraine Motel when he returned to Memphis on April 3rd. The memo recommended placement of a news item within the Bureau's friendly sources, which would read as follows, quote, the fine hotel Lorraine in Memphis is owned and patronized exclusively by Negroes, but King didn't go there after his hasty exit from the demonstration of March 28th. Instead, King decided the plush Holiday Inn Motel, white-owned, operated and almost exclusively white-patronized, was the place to cool it. There will be no boycott of white merchants for King, only for his followers. A retired New York police detective later uncovered that King was initially supposed to stay in a secluded room at the motel number 202, but was moved to room 306 with an exposed balcony after the concierge received a call supposedly from the SCLC in Atlanta asking for the change in room. According to William Pepper and Philip Nelson, the caller was actually an FBI infiltrator inside SCLC who acted under the orders of police chief Holloman and had been paid through an intermediary. The infiltrator or possibly infiltrators also had the task of getting King out of his room onto the balcony before 6 p.m. and making sure he was wearing a tie so he could be identified by the assassination. The assassin. Cover-up. After King's death, the FBI took charge of the investigation from the MPD, even though the murder was a state and not federal crime. There was an inexplicable 30-minute delay, which enabled the killers to get away. Obvious leads and significant witnesses were subsequently ignored or dismissed, and the Bureau's files sanitized. An autopsy of King, amazingly, was never conducted. To help convince the public of Ray's guilt, the FBI had William Bradford Huey, editor of the American Mercury Literary Magazine, write a book on Ray that depicted him as a deranged lone gunman. A conservative Alabaman, Huey had known J. Edgar Hoover since the 1930s. He claimed that Ray was a vicious Southern racist who had stalked King, which was untrue. Huey was given access to Ray by his first lawyer, Arthur Haynes Sr., a former FBI and CIA agent and the mayor of Birmingham when Eugene Bull Connor ordered the use of police dogs and fire hoses against civil rights protesters. Cartha, Cartha DeLoach, the FBI agent placed in charge of the investigation, had written a memo to J. Edgar Hoover suggesting that the FBI quietly sponsor a book that would tell the true story of the King case and advise friendly newsmen on a strictly confidential basis that Coretta Scott and Ralph Abernathy were deliberately trying to keep King's assassination in the news by pulling the ruse of maintaining the King murder was definitely a conspiracy and not committed by one man in order to keep the money coming to Miss King. Captain Ed Atkinson, an aide to Memphis PD Chief Frank Holloman, said that he overheard the discussion of two FBI agents at the bathroom window at the rear of the rooming house after the killing, in which one of the agents said that the tree branch would have to be cut because no one would ever believe that a shooter could make the shot from that point tree in the way. 
After undergoing hypnosis, Atkinson identified Memphis Police Captain Earl Clark as the one who called for the cutting down of the tree branch. The sanitation worker strike in Memphis started after two black sanitation workers, Echo Cole and Robert Walker, were crushed to death in the back of a garbage truck on February 1st after taking temporary shelter from a hard rain by kneeling inside the back of the truck. According to Ron Adkins, who, whose father Russell ran the Memphis City garbage dump, Cole and Walker did not die because of an accident. Somebody pulled the hammer, pulled the lever on the truck, and mashed them up in there. The motive behind the killings was to precipitate the strike that would draw King to Memphis, the ideal place for him to be killed. Memphis was ideal because of the close connection between J. Edgar Hoover and police chief Holler Holloman and the hostility towards King exhibited by Memphis Mayor Henry Loeb, a segregationist whose family had made a fortune in the dry cleaning business exploiting black labor. Furthermore, Tennessee's Governor Buford Ellington was a close friend of President Lyndon Baines Johnson, a Hoover ally who also wanted King dead. Ellington's involvement in the cover-up was demonstrated when he fired the state's commissioner of corrections, Harry S. Avery, after he had begun to investigate King's death when he came across a letter to Ray typed on McGill University letterhead, which Avery believed might have been related to how Ray was able to obtain his aliases and some Canadian passports. Ghouls in White Smocks. After more than four decades, Jonathan Shelby came forward relaying the story of his mother, Lula May, who was a surgical aide at St. Joseph's Hospital that took part in Dr. King's emergency treatment. The morning after King's death, she had ordered her family to tell him that as doctors were working to save King, one of the orderlies, John Billings, following doctor's instructions, left the room to find the men in charge. When he returned with them, the doctors said there was nothing more they could do to save King and then instructed the rest of the staff to leave the room and not talk about what occurred. According to Ludo May, who was the last to leave the room, King was still alive at that time. <clears throat> As she made her way out of the room, the head of surgery, Dr. Breen Bland, a pioneer in blood transfusions and polio vaccinations, said a couple of men in suits told the doctors to stop working on that end and let him die. She also heard spitting sounds and turned around just in time to see doctors spitting on King and removing his ventilator tube while putting a pillow over his face to ensure that he died. Ron Adkins, under oath, stated that he had been with his father and after he died, his older brother, Russell Atkins, and his father and brother discussed the plan with Dr. Bland and Frank Holloman regarding the need to take King to St. Joseph's Hospital if he had not been killed. Ron recalled that Dr. Bland was prepared to give King a certain lethal, lethal injection if it became necessary. Poor buddy. On the night of April 4th, cab driver Lewis Ward went straight to the airport after hearing of King's shooting and met a fellow driver he knew as Buddy who said he had gone to the Lorraine Motel shortly before 6 p.m. to pick up a passenger with an enormous amount of luggage. As they finished loading up his taxi in the Lorraine parking lot, Buddy, who was in his early 60s, turned to look to the area of dense brush and trees opposite the motel. The passenger then punched him on the arm to distract him and told him to look up at King on the balcony, where he appeared to be a sitting duck for any would-be assassin. At that precise moment, King was struck by the fatal bullet. Buddy saw a man, thought to be Earl Clark, come down the wall from the balcony empty-handed and get into a black-and-white Memphis PD car, which was stopped at the middle of the intersection between Mulberry and Hewlin. The passenger at this time became irritable, saying he had to leave immediately because otherwise the ambulance and other cars would box them in and he had a plane to catch. When Ward asked about Buddy a few days later, three or four other drivers in the main taxi told him 
They understood he had fallen or had been pushed from a speeding car from Route 55 on the other side of the Memphis-Arkansas Bridge late in the evening of April 4th and was dead. A pile of corpses. John Larry Ray, who spent 18 years behind bars after being framed for a crime he says he did not commit, wrote that the cover-up of the King assassination left a pile of corpses in its wake. Three months after Jimmy Hoffa's lawyer, Z.T. Osborne Jr., decided to help James Earl Ray with his case, he abruptly committed suicide, which his wife did not believe. Two judges, considering Ray's request for a retrial, W. Preston Battle and William E. Miller, died of suspicious heart attacks. Just before he died, Battle had received a request for a new trial from one of Ray's new attorneys, Richard J. Ryan, which was refused by Battle's successor, Judge Arthur Faquin Jr., in contradiction to existing Tennessee law. The church committee hearings later revealed that the CIA had developed a heart attack gun which could deliver a tiny frozen needle that upon entering the body would deliver a toxin that induced a heart attack but then became undetectable at autopsy. In July 1969, King's brother, Martin Luther King's brother, the Reverend Alfred Daniel King, was found dead in his home after an apparent swimming pool accident. By all accounts, he was a fantastic swimmer. The emergency responders said upon arrival, ain't no water in his lungs. He was dead before he hit the water. King's wife, Naomi, said, quote, absolutely, he was murdered. He was an excellent swimmer. There was no water in his lungs. He was in the fetal position. He had a bruised forehead, rings around his neck, and he was in his underwear. He was murdered, unquote. In 1971, Bill Sartor, 32-year-old writer for Life and, Cook and Look magazines, on the trail of the Marcello Liberto organized crime connection to King's death, was murdered in Waco, Texas, the night before he was to interview a nightclub owner linked to Marcello. Sartor was given a lethal dose of methaquilone, slipped into his drink. Six years after Sartor's death, former FBI assistant director of intelligence William Sullivan was shot and killed by a man, Robert Daniels, who mistook him for a deer while deer hunting. The killing occurred shortly before he was scheduled to testify before the HSCA about his former boss, J. Edgar Hoover's hatred of King. Getting away with murder. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination was a major negative turning point in American history. It sparked riots that played into Richard Nixon's call for law, law and order, deprived the civil rights and Vietnam anti-war movements of its greatest leader, and destroyed prospects for the, an interracial movement of the poor. Afterwards, two U.S. Army brigades were under, were until 1971, stationed on permanent standby to deal with domestic unrest as part of Operation Garden Plot. King had prophesied that a world starved of love in which human caring and the spiritual dimension are de-emphasized would become one of material scarcity, massive inequality, overly stressed environmental systems, and social disintegration. The men who killed King were very clearly starved of love. The evidence indicates that they continue to enjoy impunity for their crime because the U.S. government will never admit that it was behind the killing of a national treasure. The end.